invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Mike actually gave me a great setup for the uh, for this sermon this morning because uh, one of the questions that the church, and I'm, I'm kind of talking about the, the church in, in the big sense of, of uh, the, the Christian community, uh, folks who call themselves disciples of Jesus, one of the questions with which we, we wrestle quite often is how do we engage our culture? How do we interact with folks around us that don't know Christ for the purpose of being a witness for him? And Mike talked about getting to know some guys and, you know, playing bocce ball till one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, guys that, you know, don't really have uh, much of a, a spiritual background at this point in their lives, but establishing uh, a relationship, a friendship with them. And I, I think it's a great example of how being thoughtful about it really can, uh, can bring uh, great results. And so this question of how do we address uh, the culture around us? And, you know, maybe we do it through uh, talking about moral issues. You know, you talk about kind of what are the, the hot topics of the day. So there may be conversations about uh, a topic like an abortion or a topic like uh, sexual orientation, those kinds of things, maybe ways to, to introduce a conversation about faith or, or maybe talking about it from the emotional and spiritual side of things, you know, knowing Christ brings a peace to your life. It brings a a sense of joy to your life that maybe you didn't have before. That might be a way to uh, engage in that kind of conversation. Or maybe it's simply theological where uh, it's instructional. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Well, I don't think one size fits all. I don't think there's one way to approach our culture as witnesses for Christ. But I do know that Jesus has commanded us as we're going into the world, we are to make disciples. So we are part of that process. And although cultures are different, societies vary, um, there are some very specific things about humanity that remain true from generation to generation. And one of the things that we're going to see, hopefully this morning, uh, in verses 18 through 23, is that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is acutely concerned with our understanding of a biblical perspective of mankind. What does God say about humanity? Might be a way uh, to put that. What do people know about God? What can they know about God? Is there any way in which uh, the, this little word we, we use called sin, is there any way that sin has, has harmed our filter of understanding or in some, way, um, uh, in some way inhibited or changed our motives and our desires? Do we even want to know God? Well, I'm going to use a couple of... of uh, uh, folks who would not consider themselves Christians, uh, to help me make this point this morning. I'm going to give you a quote in just a minute by Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a, a very famous 20th century philosopher and writer. Uh, and then more to our day, uh, the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking, who's probably one of the smartest guys walking around on the planet right now, uh, both have a couple of observations about what we know or don't know about God. So let me uh, share those with you, and then we'll, we'll jump into this, this passage and take a look at it. Sartre first. Sartre says this, God does not exist. We have to face all the consequences of this. The existentialist is strongly opposed to a certain kind of secular ethics which would like to abolish God with the least possible expense. The existentialist, on the contrary, thinks it is very distressing that God does not exist because all possibility of finding value in heaven of ideas disappears with him. There can be no a priori God since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. Dostoevsky said if God didn't exist, everything would be permissible. 
This is the very starting point of existentialism. And as a result, man is forlorn because neither within him nor without him, without does he find anything to cling to. If God does not exist, we find no values or commands to turn to, to legitimize our conduct. You see the pain and the struggle that Sartre is going through in in his assumption that there is no God. And then to turn our attention to Hawking, the, the first part of this quote is actually taken out of the article, and the second two paragraphs are actually quoting the book. Uh, God did not create the universe, and the Big Bang was an inevitable consequence of the laws of physics. The eminent British the, uh, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking argues in a new book, and now this is Hawking's quote, because there is such uh, a law as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. If we discover a complete theory, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we should know the mind of God. Now, Hawking isn't suggesting the mind of of an individual deity, a creator, but rather the mind of God, the, the laws of the universe. Now, are their conclusions accurate? Do they, do they speak for you this morning? Do they speak for me? Is there something within our hearts that says, you know what, the, we think that the kind of the truth really is that, that God doesn't exist. Uh, and if so, uh, what impact does that have on the way in which we live our lives? What does the statement say about man's uh, rationale, man's thinking? Uh, Paul has said in verses 16 and 17, which looked at last week, that the gospel is the power of God that's been revealed for our salvation. And these arguments would say there, there is no such a thing and we're foolish to consider. Well, Paul, in, in our passage for this morning, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, uh, will take a little bit of issue with these statements and perhaps open our eyes uh, to a different way of thinking. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are venturing into very, very deep waters. Not only from a perspective of theology and ideas and thought and presuppositions and consequences. But we're delving into the very heart of man. We are confronted with your understanding of us and how we should look at our own lives and the lives of those around us, our motives, our priorities, our conclusions, our assumptions. Father, this does not paint a flattering picture. And it will be very tempting to become defensive or to become dismissive. Father, guard me from trying to water this down to make people feel better about themselves or me feel better about myself. Father, we need the truth. 
Anything less than that is of no value whatsoever. So, Father, we need you because you are truth. Lord Jesus, we need you to teach us this morning. We need your Holy Spirit and your word to indwell our hearts and minds, whether we're here as a curious onlooker, a skeptic, or one who claims to be your disciple. So, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way and you would say what you want to say this morning. Forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of our understanding of what you perceive about humanity and what you want us to know. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have four observations about these verses, and trust me when I tell you I've worked very hard to limit them to four observations. There is a lot of information here, and I would strongly, strongly encourage you to continue in your own personal study of the book of of Romans, in particular uh, the second half of chapter 1 as we dive into those this week and next. Uh, My first observation is that that Paul gives us the other side of Revelation. I'm not going to put this verse on the screen, but I want to remind you that this word revealed was used in the verse we studied last week. Paul wrote about the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that word revealed simply means to be made known, to be made plain, to be made understandable, to be, to be put right in front of you where you can see it. The, the, the one side of that coin is the gospel, is the righteousness of God. The other side of that revelation, as we see in verse 18, is actually a very different thing. It is the wrath of God. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, If the righteousness of God has been revealed, going back to verse 17 for a second, why is the world still in such a mess? Why hasn't everything been made perfect? If Jesus really was the manifestation of the righteousness of God and he came to kind of clean up this mess of sin that we have created, then why aren't we living in paradise today? As the late George Carlin said, if this is the best God can do, I really don't have any interest in him. The world is still a mess. Why is that? Well, Paul understands it very clearly and the Holy Spirit's revealed to him the exact reason why and he shares it with us this morning. The wrath of God is being revealed. It has been revealed, it will be revealed, and it will continue to be revealed. In other words, it is going to be made known. It's going to be very clear. Now, when I say wrath, or when you think of the word wrath, what do you think of? We tend to think of cataclysmic events. We tend to kind of think of the end of the world, so to speak. Uh, If you ever saw the, the, the Bruce Willis movie, Armageddon, where there's a meteor hurtling towards earth and they've got like 20 days to, to figure out how they can possibly, you know, destroy the meteor so it doesn't destroy the world. And, and Bruce Willis's character shows up at NASA and the guy in charge of NASA is explaining to him what will happen if this meteor hits the world. And he's talking, you know, this dust cloud will suffocate all life and we'll go into a nuclear winter. And, you know, and, and, he, and he sums it up by looking at, at Willis and saying, basically the worst parts of the Bible. That's how he wraps up his description. When we think wrath, that's what we tend to think. But that's not God's definition of wrath. God's definition of wrath is the lack of his presence in our lives. The separation that comes to us by sin. So go back with me to the garden for just a minute. Back in Genesis, which we studied last year. Adam and Eve have this perfect relationship with God. And because of their perfect relationship with God, they have a great relationship with one another. But at the moment they said, you know, God, we don't think we need you anymore. We've got a better idea. We're going to go ahead and, you know, have this fruit. It looks good. We're going to eat it. We don't need you in the equation. We'd like to separate our decision-making from your presence. What happened? Death entered the world. 
Why did death enter the world? Because there was a separation that was created and God's presence was partially withdrawn from his relationship with Adam and Eve. And where God is not present, sin, death, pain, suffering, brokenness, choose the metaphors you want, that's what takes its place. So when Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, all he's done is he's looked around the world and he's seen the brokenness in the world and he says that's a result of our separation from God. That is the wrath of God. It's a removal of his perfect relationship with us. Man has said to God, you can't tell me what to do. And God has said, okay, go ahead, try it without me. And the result has been what? The result has been a man-centered approach to life. When Paul uses the words ungodliness, it means an absence of God, that which is different from what God brings to the equation. When he uses unrighteousness, he simply means a violation of God's truth. This is, this is very direct and straightforward. And that's what happens. We have said to God, we're going to put ourselves in the center of the equation. We don't need you. Thank you very much. And we become self-absorbed and we spend our lives doing what? Suppressing the truth. In other words, mankind is not neutral about God. We spend our lives, whether it's in, it's in you know, being actively evil or actually being actively trying to be good. You can spend your life saying, I'm going to build the biggest, best business I can, and I'm going to give millions of dollars to charity so that I can prove that you don't have to follow Jesus to do that. That's a suppression of the truth. You say, you know what, I'm going to be the nicest person in my neighborhood apart from God so that I can prove that there is no God. That is what Paul says is a suppression of the truth. In other words, the first point here is that the biblical view is that man is under God's wrath which means it is a partial separation and relationship, which leads to brokenness and hostility. Second observation in this text is simply this. Not knowing is not the problem. Let me say that again. Not, that's probably a double negative, isn't it? You probably shouldn't word it that way. Not knowing is not the problem. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God's hiding in plain sight. When, when, when your kids were little or when you were little, you, you played hide-and-go-seek. And you're maybe, you know, two years old and you're just learning how to play the game. You know, where did mom and dad hide when you were little and they taught you to play hide-and-go-seek? Did they pick the very hardest spot tucked away in the corner of the attic so you couldn't find them and they could say they won the game? You know, if your mom or dad did that to you, I have a name of a good counselor. I mean, that, that, that could be very damaging, Right? What did, what did dad do? You know, dad went and there's, there's, you know, curtains in front of the window. And he goes and stands behind the curtain, right? And this much of his body is showing. And you walk into the room and you're two years old and you look around and there's dad. And you want to run over and you grab him and you throw your arms around him. And you're so proud of yourself about this discovery, right? And dad, was he hiding? Of course not. His whole intention was that you would find him. Mom's whole intention was that you would find her. God is hiding in plain sight. He is the God of revelation. He is the God who makes himself known for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because they're brilliant? No, because God has shown it to them. Because God has shown it to us. Well, how is he showing himself to humanity? How is he revealing himself? Well, look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly, uh, uh, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. 
so that we're without excuse. How is he revealing himself? One of two primary ways. Paul says that he's revealing himself by his eternal power. When you look at the created order, you see the power of God. Who can speak nothing into something? Who can, by his very words, hang the stars of the heavens? We were in South Africa several years ago. We go out on a night safari, which is really cool because you see the predators hunting at night, and you, and you, and you shine a light on them, and they freeze, and, and, and they look at you. But at one point in this safari, we went across this bridge in this low-lying area in this valley, and the guy stopped the truck, and he turned off all the lights, and we looked up into the heavens, and it was as if you could reach out and grab them. I've stood at Niagara Falls with my mouth gaping open like a, like a complete nut. <laughs> at the awe and the wonder of the power of that demonstration. And God spoke those things into being. His power is amazing. And creation shouts that his strength is unlimited. The restrictions of time and space are completely irrelevant to him. He lives in the eternal now. He is everywhere. But he also reveals himself in his divine nature, that he is creator, that he is Lord, he is ruler of all that has been, all that is, and all that will be. And this truth is demonstrated clearly in creation. That's why we read Psalm 19 this morning during our time of worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. The world shows his handiwork. Man knows God. We cannot plead ignorance. Cindy taught me very early on in our parenting that it was important for our children to know that we meant what we said. Never tell your children something you don't mean, either in the positive or the negative. Don't tell Nathan or Kate or Jordan that you're going to be at their game if you're not going to show up. Don't tell them that they will get a time out if they disobey if you're not going to give them the time out. Why? Because children are experts at pleading ignorance. I never knew I didn't know that, Dad. This happened to me as recently as about five years ago, four years ago. Jordan was probably in 10th grade four years ago. Nate was uh, out of college and a, supposedly a smart, well-functioning adult. And I come home, and there are marks on the ceiling in our living room. And there's a driver right there, and there's two boys sitting on a couch. And I'm putting two and two together. Is there any correlation between that golf club, your hands, the lack of use of your brains, and the marks on my ceiling? Dad, we didn't know we could, shouldn't swing a golf club in the living room. You're kidding, right? Jordan got a 33 on the SAT, uh, the math part of the SAT, or the ACT. You couldn't do the math and figure out you're 6'3", it's going to hit the ceiling? Children plead ignorance. Humanity, ever since the fall, every one of us has tried to say, I didn't know. It's not my fault. God says, not true. I've revealed myself to you. You know enough. And so the biblical view is that man is under God's wrath because we are responsible for our knowledge of God. My third observation is this. We do not worship in a vacuum. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give, him thank, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's the proper response to knowing God's eternal power? What's the proper response for me knowing and understanding God's divine nature? Well, Paul puts it in the negative. We can, we can flip it in the positive. But the two things that man hasn't done are the two things that are the appropriate response. The first is this, to give him the honor due his name, to simply acknowledge he's God, I'm not. 
He's Lord, I'm not, and, and to honor Him for who He is. For people say, isn't it kind of egotistical for God to, to want us to worship Him? No. Because He knows it's that for which we've been created. When we honor Him, we speak the language for which we were created to speak. God's not egotistical. God has given us the opportunity to see the truth and to enter into an intimate relationship with Him. We're also to give Him thanks for His care and His provision. So honoring Him, you know, giving honor to His name, giving thanks to Him, as Paul speaks of here, is simply a couple of phrases we use for the word worship. And we're to be in an intimate relationship with God through worship. And absent of that relationship in our life, what does Paul say about the outcome? It is futility and foolishness. They did not honor God. They did not give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, a refusal to worship God, to acknowledge Him for who He is, is not inconsequential. It has a negative impact on every area of our lives. You ever wonder why you wake up in the middle of the night um, if you don't know Christ or maybe this happened before you, before you knew Christ and you've maybe been extraordinarily successful? And the luxuries of everything you've earned and worked so hard for are sitting around you, and you feel like the most useless person on the planet. What, what is this all about? Why am I doing this? You ever been in a situation where you've worked so hard to make a name for yourself, and you think, you know what, in a few years, this is all going to be gone, and what difference does it make in the first place? When we don't worship God, we don't worship God in the brokenness of this world, and it has an impact on every area of our life. And it doesn't just have an impact on our vertical relationship, but when you're futile and when you're, and when you're foolish, when you're governed by foolishness, that's going to have an impact on the people around you. If I said to you, I know the biggest fool in the world, and they want to come live at your house for a couple months, how many of you would say, oh, let me sign up. Let me have them. We always tell our kids, be careful not to be around foolish people. Well, Paul says the height of foolishness is to neglect the worship of God, and that will have an impact on your human relationships. I was in my office yesterday, and I'm, and I'm working on this passage, and I hear two voices coming down the sidewalk out, outside my... Actually, I hear one voice in particular uh, coming down my sidewalk. Two women are walking down the sidewalk, and they're talking. And they're having a, a very animated conversation. One woman is doing the vast majority of the, con- of, the, of the talking. And I can hear him before I can see him. The way my office is set up on the corner... If you're walking on that side of Monroe, I, I, and I have my window open, which I did, I got about a minute of your conversation. So if you're ever outside that part of our building, do not complain about the sermons, okay? Because that, that will be bad for us. Um, so I hear this conversation going on. And, and this woman is beside herself. She is so frustrated with, I think, her husband, but, I, but I'm not sure. But, but she's talking about he... And she looked like once I saw her that she was probably roughly, uh, I don't know, maybe late 30s, early 40s. And, and so I just, I've been in my late 30s, early 40s and had someone that I have a wedding ring with say those things about me. So I don't know if that's true or not, but, but she was very upset. And by the time she gets about even with, with my window, she, this is what comes out of her mouth. I just want you to be a person. That's what I keep telling them. I just want you to be a person. And I wanted to fling the window open. I didn't because I knew I would have scared her to death. But I wanted to fling the open and said, that's exactly what he's doing. (laughs) He's being a person living in a fallen, a broken world. And our refusal to not worship God is directly impacting you in a negative way. Because we don't worship in a vacuum. We don't refuse to worship in a vacuum. Man is under God's wrath. Not only because we are responsible, I am responsible for my knowledge of God, 
but I am also responsible for my refusal to worship him. My fourth observation in this text is in verses 22 and 23. My observation is this. The pinnacle of futility, Paul says that, that the, their, their thinking has become futile uh, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The pinnacle of this futility is self-deception. Verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Friends, if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. Might be you. Might be your spouse. Might be your kids. Might be your money. Might be any number of things. But rejecting the worship of God does not leave a void in your mind or in my mind, but rather we will worship the object instead of the one who created the object, and that glory will turn to nonsense. And we trade the majesty of God for nonsensical worship of ourselves. If I took you over to Citizen Kane's restaurant at Kirkwood this week, and we stood out by the dumpster behind Citizen Kane's, and I said, we can pick through the trash and eat out of there, or I'll take you inside, and I'll buy you a great steak dinner, which would you choose? You say, Tom, that's, that's an absurd illustration. That's exactly right. Only a fool would go eat out of a trash can when they could eat at a nice table and enjoy a wonderful meal. But that is what we have deluded ourselves into believing, that the dumpster is actually more glorious than the banquet. And we profess that this is wisdom when it is actually the height of foolishness and the worst deception is self-deception. I want to read for you just as quickly as I possibly can. I know this is, this is a little bit longer sermon, but uh, we're probably in for a few of those in Romans. But I want to read for you. Uh, it's story time. So if you, got, if you brought your mat this morning, put your mat out and, and lie down. Uh, you should bring your mat every once in a while, Green Tree. You never know. Um, but this is out of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, which is the final uh, story. It's a cl- concluding story, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and the last battle has been fought, and, and it's pretty much all over with. And heaven is about to be introduced. And there are several people, Lucy and a guy named Trurian and uh, Eustace and Edmund, they're kind of there and, and the sun is broken through. They're on the other side of the door, so to speak. And it's a glorious day and, and the flowers are blooming and there's a beautiful spring scent in the air just like after it rained and everything's uh, just in its full regalia and, and they realize that they've left the old Narnia behind and they're entering into something that as they look around, it takes their breath away. And they see in a distance a group of dwarves who they had seen on the other side of the door sitting there all huddled together as if this beautiful day weren't taking place at all. And here's where the, here's where the story, we pick up the story. Lucy led the way, and soon, they, and soon all, they could all see the dwarves. They had a very odd look. They weren't strolling about or enjoying themselves, although the cords with which they had been tied seemed to have vanished, nor were they lying down and having a rest. They were sitting very close together in a little circle facing one another. They never looked around or took any notice of the humans until Lucy and Trurian were almost near enough to touch them. Then the dwarves all cocked their heads as if they couldn't see anyone, but were listening hard and trying to guess by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace indignantly. Uh, indignantly. We, we're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. They must be darn good ones if you can see in here, said the same dwarf whose name was Dingle. In where, said Edmund. Why, you bonehead. In here, of course, said uh, 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 Diggle. In the, in the pitch black, pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind, said Trurian? 
Ain't we all blind in the dark, said Diggle. But it isn't dark, you poor stupid dwarves, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? And how can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch darkness? But I can see you, said Lucy. I'll prove it to you. You've got a pipe in your mouth. Anyone who knows the smell of backy could tell that, said Dingle. Oh, the poor things, this is dreadful, said Lucy. Then she had an idea. She stooped down and picked up some wild violets. Listen, dwarf, she said, even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. Can you smell that? And she leaned across and held the fresh, damp flowers to Diggle's ugly nose. But she had to jump back quickly in order to avoid the blow from his hand. None of that, he shouted. How dare you? What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? There is a thistle in it, too. Goes on to play out the conversation a little more. And then the Christ figure, Aslan, uh, comes and approaches this scene that's unfolding before them. And uh, Lucy says, Aslan, uh, she says through her tears, Could you, will you, do something for these poor dwarves? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. And Aslan raised his head, shook his mane, Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees, pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And By the way, I know we don't eat tongues and pigeons around here, but those were like good things. So just steak and lobster. Just, put, just, just fill in the blanks with steak, steak and lobster. Uh, and each dwarf had a goblet good, of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought that they were eating and drinking only the sort of thing you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said that he got a bit of an old turnip. And the third said he'd found raw cabbage leaf. They raised their golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help. They have chosen cunning Instead of belief, their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Refusal to worship the true God. Negative impact on our spiritual reasoning is that we deceive ourselves into believing the worst lie of all. The biblical view is that man is under God's wrath because he is responsible, she is responsible, we are responsible for our knowledge of God, our refusal to worship him as God, and also for believing the lie. Now, wasn't that a delightful sermon? (laughs) Aren't you glad you showed up this morning? Wasn't that uplifting? Don't you feel better about yourselves and the world around you? I actually think there is some positive things for us to take away from the sermon, and I'm going to mention three very quickly. The first is this. As I read this passage of Scripture, I put my name in these blanks because apart from Christ, it describes my spiritual condition, my refusal to worship God, my wanting to be separated from Him, my my pretending like I don't know. 
and deceiving myself into believing that I'm okay apart from him. And so I have no room for arrogance or anger, nor does any other disciple of Jesus. We cannot be proud of our faith. It is not our faith. It is a faith we will see as we go through Romans that is very graciously given to us by God. At times I'm tempted to be angry when people try to defend atheism or, or their refusal to believe God, and I, and I start to see them as the enemy instead of uh, the gut-wrenching emotion that Lucy experienced in wanting to see these dwarves come into the light. And I need to understand that those who don't trust Christ are not my enemies. There are others who need to be free. But secondly, there's also a warning here for those of you who, like myself, call ourselves disciples of Jesus. It's clear in this passage that when we don't worship God, we worship something else. Now, I know you would all say, and I would say, I worship God, but is that really true of every area of your life? Every moment of every day, does my life reflect the worship of God? The way I handle my money, my thought life, my relationship with my wife, how I try to be a a father to my kids? Or are there places in my heart which I still hold back and say, God, I don't need you here. I've got it covered. I'll take care of it. There's a warning here for every disciple to never stop with the difficult, brutal, honest self-evaluation that says I'm saved by God's grace and I don't want to leave any stone unturned in my life where I may be resisting his will or his presence in my life. Because if I do that, I will end up with a futile and foolish and an ungodly section of my life that does me great harm. And so for us, maybe this morning, repentance is one of the applications for this text. The third is this. Deep in everyone's heart is the knowledge of God. We can try to suppress it. We can say it ain't so. But the biblical view, what God says when he looks at us is, I have made myself clear. You cannot pretend innocence or ignorance. You cannot say you don't know me. And in that, I find great hope. Because that is the seed, that knowledge of God is the seed which the Holy Spirit can use to grow someone into a saving faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. This biblical truth informs our interaction with our own souls as well as with others. And it draws us into a patient and gracious witness for Christ and prayer for those around us who don't know him. Uh, I'm going to actually let Jean-Paul Sartre conclude the sermon this morning with uh, something he wrote shortly before his death. I don't think that necessarily he came to faith, but I think uh, he helps Paul make his point. I should say the Holy Spirit. As for me, I don't see myself as so much dust that has appeared in the world, but as a being that was expected, prefigured, called forth. In short, as a being that could, it seems, come only from a creator. And this idea of a creating hand that created me refers back to God. Naturally, this is not a clear, exact idea that I set in motion every time I think of myself. It contradicts many of my other ideas, but it is there, floating vaguely. And when I think of myself, I often think rather in this way, for want of being able to think. Let's pray. Father, I uh, I would pray that you would let us see ourselves this morning. So often we pray that we would see you.
Um, I guess really what I'm praying is that you would let us see us through your lens, that we would have a biblical view of our condition. Because until we understand the seriousness of our rejection of you, we will never completely understand our need for a Savior. So, Father, while these words may be disturbing, we, maybe we would like to think that all of mankind is, is basically good and doing pretty well, and, and maybe God will just kind of give us a bit of a free pass. Father, may we come face to face with the fact that when we dismiss you, we dismiss all reason, all logic, all hope for truth. But, Father, by your grace and by your power, through your wisdom, reveal this to us this morning. Not so that we will be discouraged and distraught, but rather that we will begin to catch the outer edges of the amazing grace that you provide to us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.